welcome to episode 11 of Wikimove. In this podcast, we discuss the future of the Wikimedia movement. I'm Nicole Eber and with me is Niki Zeuner. Hi, everyone. We are part of Wikimedia Deutschland's movement strategy and global relations team. This episode was recorded on April 26 at 5.30 p.m. Things may have changed since we recorded the show, but what we still know is that by 2030, Wikimedia will become the essential infrastructure of the ecosystem of free knowledge, and anyone who shares our vision will be able to join us. This podcast is also available on podcast apps and YouTube. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so via our meta page, or you can send us an email, and all the relevant links are available in the show notes. So go on meta and also make suggestions for topics and guests. So on today's show, we will talk about two big words, decentralization and subsidiarity. Don't worry, the definitions or what these words mean actually will follow in the conversation. When the movement strategy was developed, people talked a lot about these two notions. And now, as we draft the movement charter, there are certain expectations that these concepts are reflected in the text And that is why we want to shed a light on these principles and where they actually come from. So the Movement Charter, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a document that is currently being drafted by a group of volunteers from the movement. And it will spell out the basic principles, the governance, and the roles of our movement in our movement in the future. So it's at the core of movement strategy recommendations, and it fills a long existing void about how our movement is governed and how decisions are made. So we hope that today's conversation will inform the drafting of the charter and uh, enrich the conversations around that that are emerging in the community consultations. So we invited these two very special guests today because um, people who have been thinking about movement strategy for a long time often feel that the current conversation is not enough building upon the results of previous phases of movement strategy. So today we are bringing in two of the fundamental thinkers of the initial phases of movement strategy to tap into their knowledge and their expertise. And I'm super happy to introduce our guests. And first uh, is with us Claudia Garat. Claudia is the executive director of Wikimedia Österreich since... 2012, so more than 10 years already, and she was a member of the Roles and Responsibilities Working Group during Phase two of the movement strategy process, so that was between 2018 and 2020, and she's also the president of Wikimedia Europe since 2022. Hi, Claudia. Hello from Vienna. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, and then we have with us Guillaume Pommier. Guillaume is a Wikimedian since 2005 already, so really a long time. And he's working for the foundation since 2009. Uh, Guillaume is the architect of the first phase of movement strategy, which led to the strategic direction, and that was in 2017. Hi, Guillaume. Welcome. Hello. Uh, bonjour. Guten Tag. Where are you calling in from uh, today, Guillaume? Uh, I am calling uh, from Western Massachusetts, uh, in the middle of nowhere on the east coast of the United States. 
Excellent. Good to have you with us. So, subsidiarity. Let's talk about subsidiarity, <laughs> guys. Um, so the principle of subsidiarity has been defined for us in the movement strategy. And I'm going to bore us with that definition so we're all starting off on the same same page here. So it says, the definition of subsidiarity says, our movement will make decisions at the most immediate or local level wherever possible and will open pathways for more participatory decision-making. And subsidiarity means that our online and offline communities across the world should make decisions for themselves whenever possible. It's based on the notion that they are capable of identifying their own capacities, opportunities, needs, and barriers to represent the sum of human knowledge in their areas of work. With accountability and transparency, they will self-manage. It's another important term that's also defined. They will self-manage their resources and activities and provide for their needs to overcome obstacles. So that's how movement strategy uh, defines subsidiarity. I want to like insert another little piece of information that's also in the movement strategy, which is it recommends the establishment of, of a global council as the body that makes decisions of movement-wide importance, so big decisions that affect everyone. Um, and the charter will define what those are, the way I understand it. And then once that's defined, the rest is subject to subsidiarity, which is what we're talking about today. So Claudia, can you maybe uh, let us know how um, the principle of subsidiarity got introduced into the movement strategy? Give us a little history here. Yes. So um, what we did, or like our two main tasks, to um, put it um, in a bit of a, a very easy um, easy framework, is um, that we in the um, working group of roles and responsibilities looked at two things. We looked um, into the current governance structures of the Wikimedia movement to find out what works well and what does not work so well. So where is improvement needed and what things are good and we want to expand on that and keep that. And at the same time, um, because this was not only an introspective process, we also looked into the outside world and current trends um, in organizations and organizational development and what's going on there um, and uh, tried to find inspiring stories of other organizations, either other NGOs, but we really had a broader look of like um, any kind of trend um, or or trailblazers that could be inspiring for what is to come because we did not want to design um, a governance structure for for now, for when when was it back then we started in 2018. So not for 2018 and also not for 2020, but for 2030 plus, I would say. So a governance structure that lasts for years to come. So it, it needs to be future proof in a way. And what we saw when we did both of these things was that there is actually a common denominator there. Um, and this denominator now um, uh, is framed in this principle, in this underlying principle of the recommendations of subsidiarity. And how is that a common denominator? We realized that subsidiarity is actually nothing new to the movement or something that was just introduced um, with this um, strategy process. It's something that is actually inherent in the Wikimedia project, in the self-organization and self-management of the online communities on the Wikipedias and all the other sister projects that we have by now. So it's actually something that we are good at and that we are often also mentioned in literature about um, 
self-management and subsidiarity, which also is a trend in the outside world. Like um, one of the most inspiring books that um, uh, informed our process and our thinking is uh, Rethinking Organizations from Frederick, Frederick uh, Laloux. And um, he claims that organizations have been developing and evolving over the history of mankind and that we are at the verge of a new organization, the so-called teal organization, that basically, to make it very short, is based on um, self-management, but also on um, responsibilities to employees, to members of a certain organization, um, and to the commitment to grow them and, um, and believe in their capacities and support them in growing their capacities where needed. And um, bringing these two things together then was seemed to be the obvious thing to do, to um, try to make our organizations um, future-proof by actually trying to apply some of the principles that were already around in the movement in our projects. Because we also realized that this was one of the main frictions that we had, that um, a lot of Wikimedia organizations, especially the bigger ones, were following a different logic, like a classical management um, organizational logic that did, were at odds sometimes with the way that the communities organized themselves. And this friction and this tension is something that we need to address in our future governance structure and seems also be a good way to um, addra address um, a lot of the um, future scenarios that we see for any kind of organization nowadays, which is like fast-paced change, complex environments um, where we can just see that um, this kind of new teal organization that is based on subsidiarity and um, self-organization seems to be a good answer in many regards. So this is basically how, how this principle made it into the recommendations. But as I said, it's nothing new. It has been around all the time and just got perhaps a bit more prominent or unearthed or got another name um, perhaps so far we had just a different vocabulary to talk about these things, but um, the idea was there all along. Yeah, and uh, speaking of that, the idea was there all along. I would probably like to ask Yom, uh, that has subsidiarity is already or has been embedded in our communities. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I also think that this will make it easier to grasp for people who hear about subsidiarity if they have a an actual example of how we are already using it yeah i i think that subsidiarity is useful as a word like to to put on a concept so that we're talking about the same thing but also there are ways to think about it that are um much closer to what uh like the everyday wikimedian uh knows And that is that I think the, the entire concept of uh, of wikis is based on the fact that anyone can um, can fix a mistake or can add something immediately and and then see it like as it appears on the screen for the next person, and um, that means that the the person who is uh, the closer to the problem, the problem who is seeing the person who is seeing the mistake or something on the screen can fix it without asking someone else to do it. They have the power to do that themselves uh, and to have an immediate impact. Um, and I think that idea of um, 
having the the person who is the the closest to the problem having the power to 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 fix it um, and have the immediate impact for the rest uh, of the readers um, is one way to frame subsidiarity and and like Claudia was saying it's also a model that we are uh, known for and that people look at us uh, as as models uh, for this if you think of uh, some of our strengths like um you know the fact that uh vandalism is handled completely by volunteers uh or that um we have fewer problems with uh, disinformation and misinformation and all those than uh, some of the uh, big tech platforms because a lot of those big tech platforms they have a lot of staff doing that work um, and those people are not the closest to the problem. So you have to report an issue and then they have to look at the issue and then they might do something about it. But on our model, uh, you have all the, all the volunteers who are like on the wikis every day and they can solve most of those issues like directly. Um, and of course, you know, every time we, we talk about uh, like being decentralized or centralized, uh, there is always something that has to be centralized. And that is also true when we talk about content uh, like on the wikis. Uh, there are some, a, a few very special things where volunteers can't do it. Uh, and in that case, they can escalate to the next uh, group or person or entity that is able uh, to fix it. So for example, if there are uh, specific legal issues or something where it's clearly the easiest for the foundation uh, to, to do it, then um, the foundation in that case is the, per the, the entity that can fix it. And so um, I think that's a way of framing subsidiarity in a way that makes it real for um, many Wikimedians. Claudia, do you have more examples of subsidiarity and where we already apply it in our movement? Yeah, or perhaps it's also interesting to talk about the limits um, of um, subsidiarity um, in this context, because I think um, over 20 years of Wikipedia and Wikimedia Sister Projects also shows us where the limitations of these things are. And that is often when it comes to um, enforcing code of conduct or even coming up with a code of conduct. Um, so this kind of social problems that can emerge um, wherever people come together and work together. Um, there are escalation levels where it's often hard for a group it's, itself to, to completely deal with it and make sure that um, everybody feels equally safe in a certain space. So creating these safe spaces is, I think, something where it's often required to also have independent entities to support these processes once they come to a certain escalation stage, right? Um, and um, I think we, we could see that, and that was also something that we learned in the uh, work of roles and responsibilities, that there are just like a lot of unresolved conflicts um, in the communities where there's a lot of frustration, people feel unsafe and they don't know where to go. So they went to the end of basically the the existing processes at these times and could not resolve these conflicts and they did not know where to go with that. And I think this is something that we need to think about in this future structure, how we, we deal with these kind of 
um, intense conflicts and safe spaces and how that can and should be supported, not necessarily by a super central structure, so, um, but by some kind of independent entity that is not in the heated conflict, that doesn't have a stake in there, where people don't need to be afraid to lose their face, because there's a lot of social pressures often involved. We all know it. Um, uh, there are conflicts, and you often can sense that 80% of the people know what's the right thing to do, but nobody is um, feel safe enough to speak up because they don't want to be drawn into an ugly conflict. So there's like the silent majority and um, a few people being in a very heated conflict and how can you help them out of it. So I, I think this is also something that we need, of course, to um, address that um, subsidiarity is not always um, the answer to all of our problems. And that will certainly also be um, an interesting topic um, for the movement charter drafting um, process. And we're also in the middle of it, right? Like we, what we already did since the recommendations came out, we um, introduced the universal code of conduct. Um, but I think there's still a lot of open questions when it comes to actual enforcement on the local level that still need to be addressed. But that's probably another podcast. What areas or what spheres of the movement are currently not subject to subsidiary? So we talked about the ones that are. We talked about the ones where it's probably of limited uh, use. And um, so, but, you know, if we present our movement as, oh, it's already run with the principle of subsidiary, what are the things maybe that we still need to change and why do we need, why do we need the charter to change that and what areas? Claudia, do you want to take that one? Um, I think um, some of the um, obvious choices also because they have been mentioned in um, in some of the documents that came out of the um, the movement strategy process um, are fundraising, which is at the moment um, centralized or not really centralized, but there are three entities basically who can do the full scope of fundraising in the movement. And this is grown organically um, and comes with privileges that don't, they're not grounded in like some kind of systematic um, reasoning, I would say. Uh, so fundraising, but and then also the uh, distribution of these funds, resource allocation, are two things where we definitely should look into mm -hmm. ways to make this a more um, local process mm -hmm. where people have a more immediate say in um, how and where and mm -hmm. when to, to raise resources and how to distribute them. Um, the same goes for um, capacity building. Um, although I wouldn't say that this is necessarily very um, centralized at the moment, but here here we see that this is definitely something that um, is very well done um, uh, in a decentralized way. And where the question is more like, how can we support those corners of our movement um, where it it's not developed as much as people that would like it to be? How can we do that without having to centralize it? So um, I think this is also an interesting question for things that are already like not decentralized, but decentralized, but mm -hmm. also decentralize them in an equitable manner, right? Like how do we make sure that these areas um, are also fairly distributed around, um, around the world, um, everywhere where people wish to have that and it makes sense for them in their local context. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, you, you moved into using the term decentralization sort of as, or, or centralization as the opposite of subsidiarity. 
and I think what we're describing here is is a movement the way it currently is with some of the functions extremely centralized, um, such as fundraising. I agree with that. I don't agree with that it's organically grown. I think it was a very deliberate decision to not let chapters fundraise in 2011. Um, but then things grew in very strange organic ways after that, after the fundraising was limited to a few. Um, so we're kind of moving into into decentralization, which as a it's not really a principle, it's kind of sort of a term, but it's not a principle that made it into into the charter. But Guillaume, do you want to try a definition in our context? Um, I can I can try. Um, I I think decentralization is um, a process through which we um, distribute uh, decision making and um, operations or like work um, in a way that makes it um, more efficient and effective and equitable. Um, I mean, I, I think I can elaborate on that, but I, I would stop that for a, a draft definition. <laughs> what are some of the areas? We talked about some of the areas that are currently centralized already, um, like fundraising um, and other decisions um, that, that are made currently at the foundation level. Um, so what are some of the areas um, that you would change that you would maybe in, in the future um, change to be less centralized and more based on subsidiarity? Well, I, I think one way to to answer this question is to look at why things are centralized and see if it makes sense for them to stay centralized or not. And um, if you if you think about why things are centralized, I think there are uh, two main reasons. Uh, and one is uh, because some make sense and others are because it's uh, historical decisions. Um, and if we take the example of uh, fundraising that has come up a few times, I think it's uh, it's both. <laughs> uh, there are um, and 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 so you know, you you mentioned the uh, decision in two thousand eleven to um, uh, prevent uh, chapters from uh, running the banners. So that is definitely a historical decision. Uh, if you think about uh, other things like. Um, running um like running the wikis like that is like you wouldn't imagine i mean we, we can have that thought experiment you could imagine that um every country would have to run their own servers and run their own like language version of wikipedia or the other projects um i mean it could have been that way um but then every like it, it wouldn't be very efficient and it wouldn't be very effective so for hosting the servers, it makes sense for one entity to do all of that um, because you have uh, cost savings because of the scale and you have centralized expertise and it doesn't make sense to duplicate all of those. So I think those are two examples of why uh, it might make sense to centralize something mm -hmm. or why, why um, it is centralized because of uh, historical reasons. Um, and then you think about um, mm -hmm. something like um, uh, grant making, 
where it uh, it used to be very centralized, um, and and over time uh, it has become, I think, uh, more decentralized uh, in the way that uh, you have now the regional committees where the people making the decisions um, are closer to the problem. You know, it's closer to uh, what we mean by subsidiarity, um, and um, so. I think those are the, the two ways of, of looking at it. Does that does that answer your question? It does, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So I like the, the idea of thinking about this rationally, you know, because our conversations about movement strategy are always, not always, but a lot of them are about they have too much power, they have too much money, they have too much this and that and the other. But I, I hope that when we talk or like when the when the movement charter drafting committee looks at um, who should make decisions about what, that we that we're pragmatic and that we're you know we think of these as functions and where does it make most sense to have those functions and um, so finding the the golden middle between centralized functions and subsidiarized functions <laughs> that's the thing um you know that's that's the task that this uh this charter drafting committee has to to fulfill i would just add uh one thing which is that i think uh centralization and decentralization is a spectrum um and so we we can also find uh ways that are hybrid uh, where it doesn't have to be completely decentralized or completely centralized, there there are usually uh, ways um, to to keep some of the functions centralized, but uh, like to keep the efficiency and the effectiveness, but also to have some of, out of it that is decentralized, so that you you have the local expertise and the people making decisions about the work that they're doing. Um, I like that you said this with the, it's a spectrum, so it's not either or, but it's maybe some things are moving from being centralized towards being cent uh, decentralized. And I, if I may, like what, what you said about the regional committees who distribute funds, I think this is a good example where it's moving from being decentralized uh, to decentralized, but only it started The, I don't know, the regional com committee started the journey towards decentralization because from my understanding, the actual decentralization would be if it's really, if the grant making then would really be in the hands of, I don't know, regional groups, let's say hubs. I'm not, I don't want to say that hubs should be the grant makers then, but potentially other um, structures than a central organization, but rather like regional uh, entities or something like that. So I like that uh, picture. Yeah, maybe maybe we wouldn't call it grant making at that point, you know, because grant making is like a very, it's a term from philanthropy. Ah, and true. You, you, know, you grant somebody a sort of a favor, you know, and your, and your philanthropic um, richness, which to me in a movement, when we, you know, whether it's decentralized or, or completely decentralized, um, It's just the wrong sort of attitude to start with. But sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Go ahead, Nicole. Yeah, uh, thanks, Nikki. And now I'm going back to the uh, questioning mode <laughs> <laughs> instead of commenting. And I uh, would like to ask Claudia a little bit about the history of when did this or where did the concept of decentralization 
come from during the formation of the strategy and when you in the roles and responsibilities group developed the recommendations and the different models and so on where did it come from and also why do you think it's such a strong desire in our movement to decentralize yeah so um you see me nodding the um, listeners can't see me but i've been nodding uh, along for minutes now so um, i um Uh, strong support for a lot of things that you said, and perhaps just to um, finish quickly, I think what is missing in the um, in the regional committees for um, uh, for the funds redistribution, to call it a bit more neutrally, at the moment is that you know we can actually pick these people that they're not selected by the Wikimedia Foundation or another entity, so that they can actually somehow be picked also by the people um, that they serve, and um, that also the decisions of like how much funding there is and all that so all these decisions are not in our hands at the moment so i just for for the listeners who are not so familiar with the current that's it's still grant making at the moment more than anything else but um whatever uh, funds redistribution process we will have in future so i really hope that we will make progress in this regard soon because we are yeah, as you said we are on a good journey there and it also brings me a bit then to to answering your your question nicole so what i um said in the beginning is that what we realized um, is that there is a tension between the movement culture of um, making their own rules and uh, working independently and self-organized on the Wikimedia project and how the organized part of the movement, the Wikimedia Foundation processes, but also a lot of um, the um, uh, Wikimedia affiliates work that are a bit more classical NGO governance models and um, I think this desire that you mentioned for decentralization comes a bit from there to dissolve this tension because people are just they are expecting to have an agency in decisions um, and be an active part um, of it more than perhaps in other movements um, because it's like such an inherent part of our DNA I, I would almost say um, and I think something that we should also look at is what is actually behind that term decentralization like what is the desire behind it like is it really to break up big organizations just for the sake of it or something no i don't think so um, i think for a lot of people in the community the actual desire behind it is a type of servant leadership I think this is something that we could say so it's a bit it's more about the culture than necessarily perhaps the governance structure itself but the culture that comes with it and i think this is really um, something that we also wanted to convey in in the in at least the original namings and the scenarios that we developed in roles and responsibilities where we talked about these um, still central parts as the basic support structure was not called Wikimedia Foundation or something, it was called basic support structure to make clear like this is where the basic support should come from. The, the one that, you know, ideally um, is done in a more central way because it makes sense as um, the, in the example that Guillaume um, outlined earlier. And the, um, the, the structures that we often refer to now as hubs were called back offices, which also gives a bit of a, a different vibe around like what this is actual is like this is not um, some power grabbing 
intermediate organization where we um, hope to have like some new functions of important people in Europe, for example, and I'm saying that as somebody who um, is also the president of Wikimedia Europe, um, but this is not what it should be about. It should really be an entity that actually is there to help and serve the communities in the region. And I really want to make sure that this is ingrained into what we do at Wikimedia Europe. And I also see that happening, for example, at the um, so-called CE hub where they're doing a, a very similar thing and probably even more important because in this region you have way more communities without their own um, chapter. And that was a big part uh, for us in, in our thinking, like how, like what structure is good to support all kinds of different um, local communities and, um, and uh, um, backgrounds. Um, especially in the parts of the world where you don't have existing affiliates, chapters, and, and user groups to support um, the communities there. And, um, and I think this is also something that we should be aware of if we talk about that and where the desire comes from. I think that comes from there to, to have um, the organized part of the movement to be there to serve the communities. And I think, of course, that should be obvious to a certain extent, but I don't think it feels like that in the current structures um, all the time to most of the community. I, I think there's just like, as often in institutionalism, institutions emerge and become more and more complex and it becomes harder and harder for people that are not um, in the immediately immediate in, in, uh, vicinity of this organization to actually get to where they want to and make themselves heard. So I, I think um, if we see that as one of the guiding um, ideas um, or goals uh, behind what we want to do, then that is really helpful to understand why we're actually doing it and where, the, where this desire comes from. And if we bring this into practice, what areas of our movement might become decentralized and why will they uh, or might they become decentralized? And also, what would it look like? So who is then no longer in the center or what, yeah, what does a decentralized, Centralized uh, area look like. Um, well, I mentioned earlier the. Um, I, I think what what is really important to people is being able to make decisions about the resources they have, and this is money on the one hand, but it's also other kind of resources like um, support by staff members um, that are there for them. So and also ties a bit into what I said earlier. Um, it. And it is um, capacity building, peer-to-peer -peer learning, um, that these things um, are organized. And I think one important reason also is that we can see from other organizations that are also going into this direction, because it's a trend, as I said um, earlier, is that it also helps us to be more responsive and resilient in the face of um, change, of like a fast-moving environment that we're in. And uh, I think... Back when we did that, we, we weren't even aware like of how quickly the world can change. There was no pandemic in 2018 uh, to 2019. There was um, no war in Europe um, raging where we don't know where this is going. So I think um, all these factors um, became even more apparent now where you really have like these um, super complex environments that are fast changing. And we can just see that being able to make decisions for your context, um, efficiently and quickly, um, important decisions is very helpful 
to adapt to these changes uh, if they don't need to go through a million complicated governance models, processes to San Francisco and back. So I, I think um, we can just see that the, the, the way the world is developing, it also um, makes a lot of sense to, to become more resilient by being able to um, have this kind of decision-making processes in place for us. And um, so I think we've talked a lot about uh, fundraising and uh, grant making or uh, funds uh, distribution. And what what's funny is that, um, you know, the, the way that things have been in the past tends uh, to shape not just how, what they are today, but how we think about them. And so it's funny that we talk about resource allocation, but we talk about fundraising where fundraising is only one way uh, like to bring revenue into the movement. And it's also only one form of resource. Um, and so I think we, we should think about uh, decentralizing uh, revenue and uh, decentralizing uh, uh, resources. Uh, I mean, the, the generation and collection of resources, uh, because fundraising is only one way we can do that. And, you know, we... Um, when you, when you think about it, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, trying to think through this through a, a rational lens of what makes sense and how to make sure that uh, that we do this, not just for the sake of it, but because it's um, what is most uh, efficient and effective. And if you, if you think through it that way, then you can look at different ways of generating revenue and go through them one by one and figure out, well, does it make sense to have this centralized or decentralized? And if you think, for example, about, uh, about banners, um, you have to think about the, the whole uh, technical infrastructure needed uh, for processing the payments, uh, for uh, making sure that you protect all the, the personal data, the confidential data from donors um, and, and all of that. And, and that is a, a very fast changing uh, space, especially because of all the compliance issues. You wouldn't believe the, the time and energy spent by the fundraising tech people to make sure that that whole technical stack is uh, uh, impervious to, um, to um, intrusions and that all that data is well protected. Um, so I think that is one area where centralization makes sense uh, because it would be extremely difficult to have like a hundred affiliates maintaining their own technical stack uh, for for and and maintaining that that expertise. Um, but when when you think about other ways uh, to to generate revenue, uh, I mean, for many years you have uh, several affiliates uh, that have used uh, the tax campaigns, um, where they you know I think there's. Um, Poland, Hungary, and Italy, where they 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 can benefit from the tax uh, structure in their country that no one else would be able to access. But because they are uh, local to that country, uh, it is the most efficient and effective way to tap into that revenue stream that no one else could do. And um, I think... Uh, Maybe it was Wikimedia Armenia. I'm, I'm not sure that was also able to uh, to get office space uh, from uh, from the government. I, if if I'm wrong, I'm sure someone will correct me on that. <laughs> um, and and then if you think about um, other things we that might uh, work better decentralized, you could think about 
um, maybe uh, merchandise. Like the, you know, the Wikimedia store right now, I think only ships uh, to the, the United States and Canada because um, shipping um, like T-shirts and mugs and, and all of that around the world is a logistics nightmare. Uh, and that is definitely something that would work a lot better with uh, someone who is local. And so you could imagine, I'm, I'm, I'm not committing to anything because I'm not responsible for that, but uh, you could imagine something like a partnership where you have, um, uh, you know, designs where people can share designs um, of, of, uh, of merchandise and then you could have uh, local stores in different countries where people can ship and, and make revenue from that. Um, and that would work as a sort of uh, in-between of centralized and decentralized, where you take advantage of having a lot of uh, people in different countries. Um, and, uh, and then you also have some maybe centralized expertise in terms of designs and trademarks and, and all of that. Um, so I think for all of those, um, we have to think about what makes sense, uh, what is the most efficient and effective way of, of generating revenue in all those different streams and all the streams that we are not yet thinking about, uh, but that might prove to uh, become revenue streams in the future. We, you know, we talk a lot about AI and about the fact that a lot of our content is being reused uh, outside um, of, of our sites. And so, who knows if um, if banners will even uh, like bringing revenue in ten years? There's no way to know because we don't know what the internet will look like in ten years. So, I think uh, the way that uh, Claudia was saying, you know, we have to think about subsidiarity in decentralization in uh, as like principles uh, of how we approach things. I think we have to keep that in mind um, so that we can whatever opportunities come up in the future for generating revenue, we have to make sure that um, if it makes sense from a financial perspective um, to have that decentralized, we should seize that opportunity. Claudia, do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> yeah, it's so as always, the um, ban of fundraising, I think is a bit of a contested um, issue. And um, I, um, I agree with um, Guillaume, but um, I, I think this is actually like one of the... Um, uh, one of the areas where we could also think about a bit more on the spectrum to move um, move the little, um, I don't know, cursor a little bit into another direction, because I think what um, a lot of us for a long time found uh, to be a missed opportunity is that we cannot at least include messages about our local work um, into uh, the donor messaging um, in our countries. So in Media Austria, we can't do our own banner fundraising. At the same time, I know that people would be interested um, what we actually do in Austria with it. Um, and at the moment, they still get the same um, streamlined message um, from Jimmy or the current uh, um, executive director and uh, um, telling them what the Wikimedia Foundation at large is doing. Um, so I think there's like a lot of potential of um, working together, of course, GDPR compliant, um, uh, to to localize uh, the, the messages we send out to our donors, um, even though we don't do it ourselves. And at the same time, I also see that in Europe, we have two other organizations also doing 
fundraising and having their own mechanisms. So it's also not impossible. And how can we that make perhaps these resources also available to a broader set um, of communities, um, at least in the region, um, to just make it a bit more equitable. So I think there's um, there's potential there. Um, it doesn't need to be the status quo, but I also see, as Guillaume pointed out, of course, the limitations and the risks involved with that. Just um, yeah, expand a bit on that topic. I can I can follow up, but I don't I don't know if you want to go too too deep into that. I'll, maybe I'll be brief, and you can decide to uh, to cut it or not. Um, and and I think yeah, you're right that I think there are uh, two uh, two organizations that uh, are involved directly in the banner fundraising. And I think that falls into the area of um, being efficient and effective because the foundation would not be able to do that in those countries. And so in that case, the most efficient and effective way is for them to, to do it directly. Um, I do think that uh, local communities are involved in some of the localization when it comes to uh, not just translation, but also like finding uh, uh, terms of phrases and idioms that resonate, even though the general message is the same. And um, I, I, I agree with you that people in Austria or other countries uh, might want to learn about you know, the activities that are done in Austria. Uh, and also, that is not why most people donate. And so I think both things can be true. You know, when we, when we do donor surveys, the, the number one reason by far why people donate is because they want to give back uh, for the use that they uh, that they have of Wikipedia and, and other projects. Um, and so people don't donate because they want to support activities uh, in, um, in specific countries or to do edit-a-thons. I mean, a few, but the vast majority is because they find Wikipedia useful. And I think that we, we, we might want to uh, separate those concerns. I think we could have banners to uh, raise awareness about what is happening, you know, in Austria and, and other countries, but I'm not sure that that's the best, uh, that's the most effective and efficient way of raising money because that's not the message that uh, is not what makes people want to donate. This is a fascinating discussion and I have so many things to say about it. One of which is my salary is paid by an organization that can do its own banner fundraising and has been incredibly successful at doing so. Um, and part of that success is building relationships with donors, even if they just, um, you know, donate for Wikipedia. Um, they do donate to an organization. They can deduct it from their taxes in the country that they donate, and we have the donor data and can build lasting relationships beyond small donations and that's why you know our organization is as as well set financially as we are but i think i would like to maybe move away from the money generating issue <laughs> and maybe explore one other we're probably also running out of time but explore one other sort of arena and that's um i would suggest software development as an arena of decentralization really curious to hear your thoughts um, either one of you, on what would that look like? Or is that even a desirable uh, thing to decentralize, subsidiarize uh, software development um, from what we have currently? 
I can I can attempt an answer. <laughs> um, although again, I, I'm not uh, committing to anything because it's not my area of responsibility. Um, but um, I think we need. Uh, there's definitely a need uh, for um, better better tools and better features, uh, including uh, tools and features that might um, only be relevant for a particular group or a particular geography. And so in that case, I think the principle of subsidiarity would um, advise that we, that we do uh, distributed software development. I think, uh, you know, tool labs and, and the tool server, that was uh, a, a good example of bringing some of the wiki spirit to software and tools, like uh, allowing anyone to, to build something. Um, I think it becomes a lot more complex once you want uh, those tools and features to be running on the foundation servers um, because uh, that because of security concerns and because of uh, code quality and also because uh, then you need um, resources from the foundation side um, to keep those running and to review the code and, and all of that so I um, I think there's a way of making it work, like like we see with like Wikidata and Wikibase, but uh, I'm not sure how much that could scale because the the servers are centralized. Um, and also, I think since we talked about the movement charter earlier, um, you know, one one thing that is difficult uh, for um, for the foundation is uh, to to figure out what communities think about new tools and features and how to have uh, agreement on what should be deployed or not deployed. And I think once you throw into that um, other entities who want to, to deploy software onto the wikis, uh, the, the complexity increases even more because then you have multiple uh, entities and, and wikis arguing about what they want mm. or don't want on their wiki. But is, isn't that what, what open source software communities do anyway? That they have tools to, to collaborate and, and coordinate the work? Oh, yes. And I'm not saying we, mm -hmm. sh I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm, what I'm saying is that, um, that that is a good problem for the charter mm -hmm. to try to solve because uh, if they can come up with a good way to have mutually binding agreement between the foundation uh, and the communities on what software to deploy and when, then they can probably also apply yeah. those to um, yeah. other entities. So Claudia, talk about advocacy. Um, that's That lands a little bit on a, in the middle of the spectrum as well, well right? Um, yes, it does, um, because um, I think advocacy has different aspects um, that concern different stakeholders in the movement in, in different ways. So we, here in Europe, we have um, a lot of experience and history mm -hmm. around advocacy. So even long before we even started the, the strategy process, there was the Free Knowledge Advocacy Group EU that was um, co-founded by uh, various affiliates here and basically tried to um, bring the voice of um, online communities, in particular the Wikimedia communities, um, to policy making on an EU level. Also, uh, given that EU legislation informs a lot of other parts of the world as well. Um, and actually, that was one of the um, good practices that we also came up with in the Roles and Responsibilities group of like a, a positive example for cross 
affiliate cross community cross language collaboration without having um without at that time without having a formal structure around it even and um just like Wiki Lost Monuments internationally, like on a content level. So, so there were these these projects that have been around for for a while that um, that were uh, pretty successful. And building on that, um, Wikimedia Europe now emerged as a more formalized um, organization, also because we saw the need for more transparency in the ways you can actually participate in it and shape it. Because before that, it was basically like the organizations that paid. Um, uh, uh, had direct access to some of the decision making and not even um, actively excluding everybody else but it was just like a natural thing that the EDs of the affiliates who uh, co-financed that would meet and talk about next year's budget and everything at the same time in parallel of course there was a lot of uh, community driven um, decision making around the content like what legislation should be tackled in which countries and what ways um that was in the big fat brussels meetings um but still it, it, it was a bit of you know like a lot of these things that grow organically it's then for newcomers not really easy to see like what could be my place what is uh, uh, a good access mm-hmm. um uh, into um these kind of um, activities so i i think and i hope we change that and um seeing how many organizations i think 26 we are now that's way more than have ever before been involved into um, advocacy work in in Europe are part of this new structure. Um, I think this um, this has been a successful um, first step. And what uh, I also think um, is already um, a very positive example of um, our movement strategy um, working in the day-to-day business is how we also integrated the Wikimedia Foundation as another stakeholder in this process here. Um, because they have their own interests as the actual, um, you know, platform providers at the moment. So this is a responsibility none of us um, organizations, luckily, um, has um, here in Europe at the moment on a legal level, because it's really, like, uh, not trivial. Um, So their view on the policy process is a bit different than um, for us as uh, the representatives of the um, content communities um, and peer production. So... um, Joining forces here um, was also something that the Wikimedia Foundation was very open about. So I, I really have to say that because they, their uh, first vision of putting the uh, movement recommendation into practice was to hire an advocacy person for each region of the world. Um, they also wanted to do that for Europe. Um, but for us, that would have been a not very ideal situation to have two parallel structures, two different organizations running around in Brussels, trying to talk to people. Um, So I was very happy to see Mariana being very open to conversations of like, how else we could do that together. And now we have basically a person embedded in Wikimedia Europe, um, who is paid by the Wikimedia Foundation and works directly with the Wikimedia Foundation but is part of our organization and um, to to have an even closer linkage um, of the two interests and um, the two ways to approach um, advocacy work here. And I think this is really cool. Like this is something that we did not envision um, in uh, four years ago and that just emerged out of, uh, out of the, um, the su- and subsidiarity was one of the principles we mentioned in our letter to Mariana um, as European chapters when we were saying like, hey, we're not entirely happy with the plans you have at the moment. Can we talk about it? 
And there was the willingness to talk um, and the willingness to reassess all that on the basis of the recommendations. And I think this is really something to celebrate that we can see it has already, we don't need to wait to 2030. It already has um, a positive impact um, on communities. Um, uh, so there is a willingness and I can only encourage other parts of the world to do that too. So I, because I also am aware of the privilege we have here, like we have a lot of stuff um, to, to manage these processes and get in touch and write letters. Um, but um, I, I can just sense this willingness and I would encourage other parts of the world to, to voice what is their vision um, of subsidiarity and, and centralized or decentralized structures in their region and, um, and go to the Wikimedia Foundation and talk to them about like how how this um, how this uh, relationship should be structured in future. Yeah. So if we imagine that this trend uh, continues that you just described, Claudia, and the charter is also going to lay out this decentralized movement, um, I have a question for Guillaume. What do you imagine, or what would a Wikimedia Foundation look like in such a decentralized movement? Um, okay, that that is a big question, <laughs> and I can only imagine. Um, but um, you know, if if you think about the roles that the foundation is playing now, um, like I was saying earlier, there, there are roles that make sense and uh, roles that are uh, historical. And um, you know, the foundation just uh, published a draft annual plan uh, on Meta a few days ago, and. Uh, for those of you who have had the, the, the time to dive into the 80 pages <laughs> of text uh, in the annual plan, you'll see that uh, it uh, recenters on uh, product and technology. And I think that is uh, one main role of the foundation that is uh, both uh, historical and uh, makes sense. Um, and so I think that that is a function that is a, a major function that the foundation will uh, will keep uh, running like, for, for a long time. Um, and then there are other things that the foundation does uh, because um, because reasons. Um, and, and those, I think, are uh, subject to maybe being uh, decentralized. Um, and, you know, the, um, there's this, uh, this model uh, that uh, some of my colleagues have been uh, looking into and also some people around the movement called the collective impact model um, that we can link to uh, in, the, in the notes. Um, and uh, my, my colleague, uh, Yale Weisberg, has been, uh, what used to be part of the organization that developed uh, this model. And so uh, she's been um, uh, talking uh, about uh, talking with other people about how this could apply to the movement. And uh, some uh, an aspect of this model is the concept of a backbone organization, which is uh, an entity that does some of the centralized work uh, that has to be done anyway, and that where it makes sense for that work to be centralized. Um, and I'm not like, the foundation could be the backbone organization or like the foundation could like that organization could be separate from the foundation. I don't know what makes sense. I think that's a discussion that we can have uh, as a movement, um, and that is just one of different models that we could use. But I think it's interesting to to think about you know what makes sense and um, uh, and what is just a result of of history. And and 
I would guess, you know, because everything is a spectrum, there's also what makes sense because it has been that way and it would be like, too costly to change it. Thanks, Guillaume. That's, you know, it's a, it's a great time to think about collective impact and backbone organizations and the other things that make multi-stakeholder initiatives, so this other jargon for this, <laughs> what makes them tick, what makes them effective. And, um, but, and I think today's discussion really um, did what we wanted it to do, which is shed a light on these, on these big words and, and um, clarify how they actually bring pragmatism and rationality into this discussion, which is usually or often very emotional and not very informed by, by those models out there. So um, I can only recommend to our listeners and everyone else who's interested in the future of a movement to go back and look at the recommendations and the work that the Roles and Responsibilities Working Group did in 2018 and 2019, because um, they did a lot of the legwork already, and we don't have to do it again. Um, and as people write the charter and consult on the charter, I think um, being informed by that would be super beneficial. I want to thank you guys for this great discussion and um, we dove into some pretty big topics and managed to <laughs> manage to shed a light on those without um, having too much controversy. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you guys. Hope we have you back soon. Guillaume, we didn't say this in the beginning, but you are the first double guest on this show. You're coming back for the, for the second time. And so thanks for that. Thanks for putting up with us. Yeah, I, I was I was happy to come back. It, I think it was about a year ago. Um, yeah, I think so it was our first I'm, show, I'm actually, glad. right? Yeah, yes. Um, yeah. You, you didn't scare me away, and apparently I didn't scare you away. So I think I would, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was nice to be back. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming, Claudia. So that's a wrap of the 11th episode of Wikimove. Thanks for listening. Wikimove is a production of Wikimedia Deutschland and its movement, strategy, and global relations team. Eva Martin pulls all the strings in the background so that we can create excellent content. Our music was composed and produced by Rory Gregory and is available under a Creative Commons license, CC by SA, on Wikimedia Commons. And again, thank you also from my side to our wonderful guests, Claudia, and the returning uh, guest, Guillaume. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. We release new episodes every month, so stay tuned. Visit our Wikimove Meta page, listen to previous episodes, react to our podcast, connect with the listeners, check out the show notes for all the interesting literature and um, background we mentioned today. And um, you can also contact us via email, wikimove at wikimedia.de to continue this discussion and share your suggestions for next episodes. Ciao for now. Ciao for now. Tschüssi. Oh, we forgot something. We have to give you guys a little hint for those of you who didn't know the movie we referenced in our previous episode. Here's the clip. I was bowling. <laughs> <laughs>
So you have no frame of reference here, Donnie. You're like a child who wanders into Walter, the middle of a movie and wants to know. Walter. And the movie is The Big Lebowski. Thank you.